This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everyone, stop what you're doing because you want to hear this. This is our most read story on the Bloomberg Terminal all day, and it is an exclusive a scoop. It has to do with the Trump administration, officials talking about ways to limit U.S. investors' portfolio flows into China. And yes, indeed, another escalation, it feels like, of the U.S.-China trade spat. Sean Donnan is all over this. He's our senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News, responsible for the reporting, uh, contributor to Bloomberg New Economy. He's in our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. You and Jenny Leonard putting this story out, Sean. Um, it's definitely caught investors' attention. It's not a done deal. So is this the, um, just a little bit of game in, gamesmanship going on or what? Yeah, so let's be clear. This is a conversation that's going on in the White House. They look out there and they see China's efforts to open up its financial markets and to lure capital in, and they don't like what they see. So in the White House, they're looking at how they can uh, constrain uh, that and if there's any actions they can take. And they're mulling everything from forcing the delisting of U.S.-listed Chinese companies, and about 150 of those, uh, to... Uh, finding a way to apply pressure or regulate uh, index companies and China's weighting in those indexes. Those, of course, are the indexes that a lot of fund managers um, benchmark their um, their emerging market and other funds to. Uh, so that would have a huge impact on uh, all sorts of uh, investments uh, here in the U.S. This is kind of the trade war. I mean, I, I thinking about this as, as I was uh, waiting to come on, you know, this is the, the trade war when we think about the the Wall Street reaction to this, it's often been about what the economic damage right. is going to be, what the damage is on corporate profits and so on. This is the trade war is actually coming to Wall Street's business lines. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're raison d'etre. Um, and it's the capital wars, if you will. I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like so often we're talking to you and you have really been so terrific in keeping us honest on the, the ebbing and flowing of these talks, the real economic impact. You've done a lot of great reporting throughout the United States, but often we're talking candidly about like soybeans and we're talking about farmers and the impact on them. I mean, now we're talking about just just to put some names on it. We're talking about Alibaba. We're talking about JD.com, Baidu. You know, these are the juggernaut tech companies, global tech companies in many ways that have become a part of the I'm going to say it zeitgeist of the current market and the decoupling that we talk so much about. This would be a huge step forward in the decoupling of the U.S. and China. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about potentially trillions of dollars in financial flows here. I mean, just to, to give you an idea of things, China is now 2.5% of the global aggregate bond index. That's about $1.4 trillion. Chinese companies are 30% of the Bloomberg Barclays Emerging Market Corporate Index. Wow. These are, you know, these are big chunks of, uh, of investment allegations. And it's not just you know, taking the trade wars to Alibaba. You also got to think about this as taking the trade wars to 401ks and, right. and to investment savings. Uh, sorry, Sorry, uh, retirement savings here in, in in the United States, and and how those are allocated, and that's a little bit how folks in the White House are pitching this. This is you know. The, the 
people close to the to the discussions tell us that they really are seeing this uh, or framing a lot of the internal discussions as a way to protect U.S. investors from getting caught up in uh, financial frauds mm. in China, uh, investing unwittingly as a result of, of being part of a fund uh, that they don't even know is investing in Chinese companies, and those Chinese companies aren't subject to the same uh, standards of transparency uh, that you get here in the United States, and as a result, you can get some financial frauds and so on. So, look, I mean, that you know, there's there's all sorts of things that tie into this, and it's um, that's why but, these discussions are, are are pretty complicated. But Sean, I get that, and that's just to me the U.S. regulatory oversight of any kind of listing, a foreign listing, has to be you know, up to snuff and make sure that, that we're not seeing some kind of shell company come to the U.S. market. I mean, put this in perspective, though, of all the trade back and forth just this week alone. I mean, is this just a way for the White House to kind of get the news off the impeachment story? Or is this kind of another round of escalation when it comes to uh, U.S.-China and their relationship? Yeah, no, it's funny. You know, I've gotten the impeachment question a couple of times today. And and mm-hmm. this is a story that Jenny and I were working on for the past couple of weeks um, and really been trying to nail down exactly what this discussion is that was going on in, in, or that is going on in, inside the White House. And, you know, we were reporting this out before impeachment was even uh, in the zeitgeist, to mm-hmm. quote to quote Jason, uh, I, I, so it's you know I don't think this is a, an, an effort by the White House to to shift the focus. This is not something to be honest. The White House probably wants out there. Right. Um, uh, it's certainly, you know, the White House has refused to comment to us uh, uh, on the record on this. Uh, this the um, this, the second thing to think about is is I you know if you step way back. The simple fact that they're having this discussion in the White House is remarkable. Don't forget, the U.S. is one of the world's most open U.S. economies. These are effectively capital controls that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. That's something that we normally talk about in the context of an economy like China's. Well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up too, Sean, because I feel like, you know, you and I have been doing this for a long time. Carol's been doing it for a little while. But this is a situation where so many companies for decades have been trying to get into China, to figure out ways to invest in China. This is a fast-growing economy, second largest economy in the world, I believe. So this feels like, I, I would imagine to many market participants, a step back, a significant step back. And I have to think that's part of the reason why the market's reacting the way it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, it's a step back that a lot of people inside the White House want to see. You know, there, there are people in the White House who actively are pushing for a decoupling yeah. of the world's two largest economies. But there's also a reality here, and that is that find me an American company that does not want to do business in China today. You know, there's, uh, I, for another story, recently talked to the CEO of Cummins. They sell 40% of their diesel engines in China. They also make 40% of them in China. That's a U.S.-listed company. Those are profits that, that come from China that's dependent on. And it's the same thing with Wall Street firms. You know, do you think Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, uh, companies like that don't want to do business in China? There's a big, rich pool of investors there, and they're still going to be there uh, regardless of what happens in these trade wars. Yeah, and you, and you do wonder your bigger, you know, broader story, too, about, you know, this is just maybe one, you know, just a reminder that there's another trade war brewing in terms of Europe 
uh, and that's going to be in the magazine uh, this week that I highly recommend that everybody check out. There's a lot going on when it comes to trade generally with the United States and its trading partners. All right. Sean Donnan, phenomenal, phenomenal scoop. You and Jenny Leonard have it. It is the most read and really sort of begetting uh, several other of the most read stories on the Bloomberg in a very, very busy week uh, here on a Friday afternoon. Sean is the senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us from our 99.1 studio in the nation's capital. So federal health officials said nearly 77% of cases of patients with vaping-related lung injuries had used products containing THC, adding to evidence that such vaping devices and cartridges are lead suspects in the widening epidemic. And this comes just yesterday. We heard the CDC saying the number of vaping-related lung injury cases stands at 805. That's up from 530 reported a week earlier. Let's get into this. Dr. Ian Lospader is back with us. Clinical clinical, excuse me, Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Anytime I read about any of this, it makes me um, really somber because I really feel like as regulators and people watching a market, we just kind of missed it. Yeah, no question. Thanks for having me. It's really unfortunate that what started out as a potential way to help smokers transition into something safer has now really changed to be a public health threat. Did we really think it was safer? Did we have the scientific evidence and said it was safer? No. We know cigarettes, certainly, we've talked about this before, have have a number of of well-associated ills. But unfortunately, even the basic material, which is propylene glycol, gets heated and aerosolized, same material in smoke machines, safe in food products, FDA approved, has not really been well studied and can cause irritation in and of itself without any additives, but it appears the 12 deaths and the 800 plus lung injuries um, seem to be mainly associated with additives, either flavors, but really more bootleg counterfeit, possibly Chinese or other country, uh, THC, CBD oil, and being cut with vitamin E, which uh, when you ingest it is fine, but when you inhale it can cause severe lung irritation. It, it's, a, it's a lipid that causes uh, severe lung inflammation and respiratory distress syndrome. So it appears you have a baseline irritant, this propylene glycol, which uh, you know to kids appears cool. 40% of high school seniors report having tried vaping. Incredible. And But when these other additives come in, unregulated, bootleg, because they look interesting or cheaper, a lot of those materials cause severe lung injury, and they've even found pesticides, um, heavy metals, organic chemicals like benzene, and material that gets metabolized to hydrogen cyanide. So there's uh, being unregulated. And, and, and in this kind of device... You're inhaling it directly into your lungs and into the bloodstream, in essence. So we really need um, significant regulation. Some states have started to ban uh, flavors, but it may not just be the flavors or the underlying um, uh, vaping material. It's probably these bootleg additives. And I think it turns out like anything, unregulated, if you let people buy whatever they want or or import uh, and sell, buy cheaply and sell to kids you risk a lot of problems. And that's the part that makes it right more difficult is that I think there is a growing realization that this has been marketed very much so targeted and that was the the New York State issue but I really think that that we need sort of at a federal level 
to really say this is like any other potentially right. dangerous substance. You can't go down to the corner store, buy a packet off the shelf. Who knows where it's from or how it's been adulterated? Uh, and now we're paying the, the price for that. So I think we need to do something much more aggressive than say we're going to study it more or we're going to advertise right. for people to as the CDC said, you know, try and influence kids not to do it. I don't think the kids are responsible enough to really make that decision. Right. They're not informed enough. And so tell us, you know, what are the lessons learned from the regulatory framework around tobacco and, and cigarettes that can be applied here? Granted, we're behind. I, I think no one would dispute that. But what do we know from what works federal, state, and, and um, private sector that we can apply here? You know, we, we, we like to be free and, and be unregulated, but unfortunately, people are often not informed enough to make good decisions. Tobacco, 20s, 30s, 40s, when it came out, they thought it was good for you. Right. Um, alcohol unregulated, even, even something like aspirin would be regulated today because overused, it can cause other problems. And I think vaping is, um, looks cool. The kids like to do it. It's marketed to kids as flavors. Very dangerous to really entice young people into something that we have not proven as completely safe. And so unfortunately, you hate to say more regulation, but I think we really need to clear the shelves of any of these bootleg additives, right? THC and CBD. Who do you, can I ask you, because uh, we've only got about a minute left, um, Dr. Lesbader, who do you blame? Because well, I do wonder, we know enough about the damages from smoking and cigarettes that when a product like this comes on the market, you think we would have had this it great have been base of knowledge. More. Yes, we should have known better. And just because some of the ingredients are okay, for example, to ingest like propylene glycol, we did not study. And I don't think we anticipated the market, the money that could be made by um uh, these bootleg or counterfeit THC and CBD, mm -hmm. even the CBD, and we've done shows on this, none of that is regulated. Right. We need medical marijuana, CBD may be very helpful, but all of this stuff really needs to be centrally cleared and then made available. Yeah, and we really, uh, you bring up such a good point, we really just don't know uh, right. about a lot of this stuff and so much of it has gotten out onto the market. Central Clearinghouse is something yeah. that, right, that needs to be done. You need a product certification that says yeah. this has been inspected right. and this is safe for you. All right, always good to catch up with you. Thank you. You really always make us smarter about some of the most important medical issues of the day. Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine over at the NYU Langone Medical Center here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So earlier this week, Jason and I caught up with Queen Maxima of the Netherlands to talk about the importance of finance, uh, financial inclusion. She's working with the UN Secretary General specifically on that program, has been uh, for many years. Our next guest is also involved in doing something similar, starting at a younger age, focusing on financial literacy. For kids, Tim Sheehan is CEO at Greenlight on the phone from Atlanta. Tim, nice to have you here with uh, Jason and myself. Tell us a little bit about Greenlight. Hi, yeah, hi, Carol, hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, Greenlight is—it's all about helping parents raise financially smart kids. Uh, so we uh, have a built-in uh, spending account with a debit card connected to it, where the parents can choose the exact stores where the kids can spend and how much they can spend. Um, as a built-in savings account uh, with a parent-paid interest rate tied to it, so the parents can kind of really heavily incent the kids to save. Um, <clears throat> that's kind of fun. It's uh, 
some parents set it at you know 50% or 100% to really incent the kids to save. Uh, and then there's a built-in giving account uh, as well as chores tracking and, and allowances can be automated as well. Wow, this is really interesting. And, and obviously, you've gotten some big backers. You just raised a, a Series B round, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo uh, in there. And you had some existing uh, VC investors as well continue on their investment journey, as it were. Uh, where did this idea come from? Because, you know, you ran Yahoo Finance, so you've seen, uh, you know, a lot of the, the financial world, but it's surprising how untapped, candidly, uh, this market is. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. It, it's a classic story of, of, you know, the entrepreneur facing the problem himself and, and then finding out that actually, you know, parents across the country were facing the same issue. But I have four kids, uh, two boys, two girls, and I, uh, my wife and I were having these, this issue where we weren't carrying cash very frequently. Uh, we were making all of our purchases with debit cards and credit cards, mm-hmm. and yet we still had these circumstances where you know the kids might be going on a school field trip or uh, traveling with a sports team or, or maybe just going to the movies with their friends. Uh, and so we wanted to be able to give them money, uh, yet we weren't carrying cash. So there was just this kind of fundamental problem of the you know declining use of cash. And um, when we spoke with parents, uh, you know, first started with 100 in-person interviews and then did a survey nationwide of parents. And essentially, uh, most most parents were encountering the same issue. And and in talking to them, that's where I learned that they not only wanted to solve this problem of being able to give their kids money, you know, when appropriate and have some oversight of that, they also wanted them to be smart about money. Right. You know, they wanted them to learn how to spend wisely, the importance of saving, because unexpected things pop up in life, like the car needs to be repaired, things like that. What I kind of love is, can it teach my daughter, who's got a bank card, a debit card, and she doesn't use it. She just keeps tapping us for cash because she likes to save it and hold on to it. What's interesting is, I guess your card differentiates from what a normal bank card in that, as a parent, you can put controls, as you said, about what stores it can be used on and and so on and so forth. So you really have a lot of oversight into it. Yeah, yeah. You can can choose the stores where they can spend. You can choose how much they can spend. Um, You can also, you know, incent the kids to save. Like that's a really um, popular feature is the, I mentioned the parent paid interest rate. Um, The average across all of our parents is 18% APY. So uh, I think any of us would love to have that return. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds pretty good. But it's really working because the kids, uh, they just saved over $10 million, uh, all the Greenlight kids. Um, So it's it's really working. They're they're learning to save. So what do you get out of this in terms of, because it's a business, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a a subscription fee. It's $4.99 per family per month. Um, and so that means that, you know, all the, all the parents and up to five kids are all included for that one price. Interesting. And so do you see any competition looming? You've got some big backers in terms of the big banks, but do you feel like uh, maybe somebody else is going to have this idea, especially from a bigger financial institution perspective? No, I think, you know, I think what makes us feel comfortable is is because uh, Chase and Wells Fargo kind of, you know, uh, really, I think what attracted them was the mission, uh, yeah. Greenlight's mission of helping parents raise financially smart kids. 
um, you know, because they're they're trying to help their customers, adults also be smart about money, but they're interested in helping the next generation as well. Um, but I think with the support we have with this round that we did, um, right. I think we're I think we're in a strong position. Hey, Tib, just 15 seconds. How many people do you have signed up, or how many families do you have signed up? We have over 500,000 parents and kids using Greenlight. Wow, that's a substantial number. Well, looking forward to catching up with you as soon as this builds out. It's a really great idea. Tim Sheehan, Sheehan, excuse me, is Chief Executive Officer of Greenlight. He joins us on the phone from Atlanta. Uh, Check them out via Twitter at Greenlight card. Let's wrap up the week in Washington. Bloomberg News, Washington politics reporter uh, Ryan Teague Beckwith. He has had a very busy week. He joins us once again uh, from the nation's capital. Ryan, I don't know if you have to write a summary of the week, what would it say? I just want to say that I'm upset that you guys don't have a song introducing me. (laughs) What would it be? What would it be for this segment, Ryan? Uh, There's a James Brown song that's like about Watergate. That would be good. Is there really? Well done. Yeah, it's actually defending Nixon. Interesting. Um, Well, and the GOP continues to do that. So... What do you make of as we go into the weekend? And I have to say, when we're in the news business, I know this happens to you, you the lay people, as it were, but people outside the news business. Someone literally stopped me getting off the train yesterday and said, can you just explain to me what's going on? What would you say at a cocktail party tonight if you weren't in Washington? I, I would say that this is the probably the most extended time during the Trump presidency that he has not been in control of the cable news cycle. And that is a, that is probably the best indicator that you have of, of how things are going for him. Um, this is uh, beyond his control at this point. They had been fairly effective at uh, keeping the conversation going, even when it wasn't necessarily something that other presidents would have thought was good, like um, Greenland. You know, that was right. something that he nonetheless liked because it was him in control of the cable news narrative. And, and he would have fun with it, you know, tweet out memes and things like that. This is not fun. It's not something that the president wants. It's not something he likes. The fact that it's an impeachment inquiry, uh, even though, as the president's defenders have said, nothing formally has changed other than Nancy Pelosi calling it that, uh, that gives extra weight to everything they're doing. Um, that means that all of the records that they want that they've been stonewalling on, all of the uh, sort of fights that they've been having over, you know, what they can see, what they can't see, what's executive privilege, all those things become much more freighted because when you go to the courts, the courts are going to say, look, this is the proper forum for something. It's an impeachment inquiry. Um, Courts tend not to want to get into executive privilege arguments between the branches. It's, they sort of view it as like, you know, when your two kids are fighting, like, I don't know who started it, but just stop. Right. Um, but when it's an impeachment inquiry, that is, you know, in the Constitution. This is something that Congress can do. And so I think that's going to give it extra weight legally for um, the requests that they have for information. And that means that there's potentials for other stuff to come out. What does it mean for Mr. Barr of the Justice Department? Uh, I mean, this is not good for him because uh, he's named in uh, both the transcript and in the whistleblower's complaint um, as someone who's involved. Whether or not he was involved, the fact that people were talking about, oh, you should check in with him, um, means that there's an appearance of a conflict of interest, which makes it harder for him to oversee the Justice Department's role in all this. I think one lesson from the Mueller uh, situation was that Trump does not like for people who work for him to recuse themselves from right. oversight and investigations. I doubt that 
Uh, he Cue will, Jeff Sessions. Yeah, he made <laughs> yes. that very clear. <laughs> yes, so I doubt well, that he will do that, but it yeah. does mean that it uh, doesn't look good for him. Right. Um, and, and who knows what else could come out in right. which he was involved. Well, just to show you how much we appreciate all your work uh, this week, Ryan, uh, a little bit of... You can have what it takes, but See, we found it. That's amazing. That's news you can use. That's and James that is, Brown. It's real-time news, which you know we're in the business of here it's a real uh, song. at Bloomberg. It's a real song. And Ryan Teague back with brought us that and so much more this week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, time for the drive to the close. Just got about 12, 11 minutes left in today's trading session to wrap up the week. Joining us once again, J.J. Kinahan, Chief Market Strategist at TD Ameritrade. Firm has $1.3 trillion in assets under management. J.J. joining us once again on the phone from Chicago. What's going on in Chicago right now? Hey, Carol, it's raining like nobody's business is what's primarily going, just like the market, raining down upon us at the moment, Carol. <laughs> well, what do you mean the market's raining down upon us? I mean, I know we're well, seeing some selling, but we're yeah, still up at bad. pretty lofty levels. We, yeah, a, we are still up at pretty lofty levels. I've been of the opinion that, you know, we're going to stay between 2800 and 3000 until we actually have something on pen to paper. Uh, when it comes to the tariff situation, and until then, it'll I, I think what it does show is that it continues to be the number one thing that overhangs the market. And so, anybody who thinks they're getting, and the market just reacts to any insight they believe they're getting, even if it's a little bit of a you know wild goose chase. And the other thing that I think is very interesting on a day like today, you know, I started with the joking about raining down. It's not that big a move, to your point, you know, mm -hmm. uh, under 0.70% at the moment. Uh, the fact that bonds are down on the day, uh, you know, bond futures, et cetera, not by much, but a little bit, also shows that there's no true panic. You know, people aren't going crazy at the moment. Well, let's talk a little tech because, you know, we heard from Micron a little bit earlier this week. I guess it was just yesterday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Feels like a long time ago. Um, <laughs> you know, what do you make of what they told us either about their specific story or about broader tech demand? Because those memory chips, they are in so, so many devices. Yeah, you know, I, it, it is interesting to me that... Uh, I, I thought we might see Micron actually give us something positive. Um, they did have actually, you know, the, the, their quarter wasn't really that bad. Right. It's really the adjustment going forward yep. that has people. So, you know, I want to make sure that, it, it, that, that that's kind of stressed too. Uh, but what it does is it does make, I think, everybody a little bit nervous about what can happen overall, but what it also does, I think, is really hits home the primary theme that we saw throughout this earnings season and also last earnings season. The consumer is incredibly healthy. However, 
those businesses that are relying on a lot of uh, foreign demand for their products, outside perhaps maybe what Nike said, uh, are having a tough time, particularly in technology. We saw it some more in some of the big industrials also. So that theme is also continuing to hold overall. It's just that Micron's going forward adjustment, obviously, by the reaction of the stock, was much bigger than people thought it would be because some of the other adjustments we've seen have been, okay, it's going to slow down a little bit. Theirs was was, uh, much more significant overall, which I think as we start to roll into the upcoming earnings season may make us a little bit nervous, not only for the chip makers, but also perhaps for those companies. You know, I I think a a stock I know you guys talk about a lot and certainly a favorite of our clients is Apple. And what's it going to mean for, you know, companies like them going forward? And I think that that now becomes the most interesting thing of the upcoming earnings season because back to the consumer for a moment, I find it hard to believe that the consumer demand between now and the holiday season is going to dissipate barring some major disaster. Employment's good. As long as employment stays good, I think people will continue to spend money. The the, the part that makes me nervous is after the holiday parties are done and the credit card bills start to come, that's when I think you're going to start to see the day of reckoning, and it just seems like perhaps some of these chip companies are uh, setting up a little bit for that day of reckoning. So... What do you think is the most worrisome thing for financial markets right now? In a week Uh, where we've had news, we've had trade news, we've had a lot of political news, we've had geopolitical news. Um, I don't know. What do you think is the most worrisome? uh, Actually, the most worrisome for me is I do think when we finally have some sort of settlement on tariffs, that we may hit the skids a little bit, even if it's somewhat favorable. Um, As long as we continue to, and I'll use air quotes, kick the can, I think the market stays in a range. But as soon as we have some news, the first reaction may be, if people feel it's great, a little bit of a pop, but overall I feel it starts to go to the downside because there's been this sort of, well, if tariffs settle well, we won't sell off. And I think that that's given the market perhaps some artificial support. And I don't mean to come on and be negative. Listen, the market's done amazing uh, over over the last. We can all say it's been an incredible year, but I think uh, it's the the tariff overhang has disguised perhaps some of the problems that certain companies are having, only because many are like. Well, if tariffs are good, we don't have to worry about that going forward. We're still going to have to worry about it. And the biggest, longest-term effect, Carol, that makes me very nervous is the fact that you don't hear people talking about spending money on infrastructure. That's not something that hits you in the short term, but two- to five-year time frame, we are going to pay that price if we don't get some sort of settlement because if you're a CEO and you spend on a new plant or something like that and tariffs somehow hurt that, that gets you fired. If you buy back stock or pay an extra dividend, that's not going to get you fired. So it's actually encouraging a little bit of bad behavior. Who did we just see? Was it Microsoft that just announced the big, what was the company, was it last week, that announced a big buyback? Yeah, it was Microsoft. It was Microsoft. It was Microsoft, yeah. 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 So, yeah. Uh, so before we let you go, JJ, just a little less than a minute left. What do you make of the Wells Fargo news, finally hiring uh, a chief executive officer? Again, I think it's a good thing. Uh, anytime you have clarity, 
yeah. that's great. And one of the things, you know, as you go through CEO changes, companies, et cetera, now you can set a plan and, and you know, stick to it and say, okay, it's not just about – I'm sure there have been a lot of short-term plans over the last uh, few months, and, and then it's the, well, when our CEO gets here, it may be this. Right. So people don't pay as close attention. Now you have somebody saying, here's where we're going. You may like it, you may not like it, but at least everybody knows what the North Star is for the next three years. And you can start to unify a company around it. Yeah. So it's a very positive, uh, a very positive development. And I think the stock's reflecting that being up three and a half percent today. There you go. All right, JJ Kinahan, always great to catch up with you, Chief Market Strategist for TD Ameritrade. They look after about one point three trillion dollars, so they got to have some takes on some stuff. He joined us on the phone from Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.